So um, to me, the book of Hebrews is very interesting in that it opens up with no introduction, no salutation. There's just no small talk, no chitter chatter. It's just like, bam, you just get right into it. And um, as Trudy pointed out last week, the letter is written to uh, Hebrew Christians who uh, have received Christ, but because of the persecution that they received, they were considering, maybe I'll just go back. It was just easier to, to worship him, to worship God in that, that setting, um, into their Old Testament sacrifices and the keeping of the law. You know, that was something comfortable for them. And um, so they were considering maybe going back to that. But, you know, what the epistle is going to show us is there is nothing to go back to. There is, you cannot be saved through the law, through the sacrifices. It's only going to be in Christ. And during Jesus' ministry, uh, many people were listening to him and said, what? I can't deal with this. And many of the disciples walked away. And he turned to the 12 and he said, are you also going to walk away? And in John 6, 67 through 69, uh, Simon Peter answered, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's nowhere else to go. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Now, the Jews had a great regard for how God had spoken in the past. Um, they kept, you know, the, the Old Testament, and, um, and they regarded the prophets and the angels that God used to do wonders in their history. And so tonight we're going to look at um, how Jesus is revealed uh, to be better than the prophets, verse 1 through 3, and how Jesus is revealed to be better than the angels in verse 4 through 9. And one of the things that is just so important is the keeping the proper perspective of Jesus in our lives. And this is what, uh, what the author is doing here. In verse 1, he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now those are some pretty tightly packed truths of Jesus. So we're going to unpack those a little bit right now. I love how the book starts out, God, that's it. Kind of like Genesis, in the beginning, God. There's no explanation, it's just God. And then in John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is it that we use to communicate with? It's words. Jesus is the word. He is God's communication to man. Um, now, he tells us that uh, God had spoken at various times and in various ways through the prophets throughout their history. The various times means in several parts, in stages. He didn't give the message all at one time. The revelations God gave in the past were fragmentary 
They were progressive. Not one prophet got the whole message at one time. So it's like putting things together. Um, as you learned about God's, uh, God's message. He also spoke in various ways. It was not communicated the same way every time. Sometimes God would speak um, directly. Sometimes it would be through visions, through dreams. The different prophets had different ways in which they communicated their message uh, to us. <clears throat> God spoke through the law, through prophecy, through the Psalms. Uh, but he spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And these prophets were held in high esteem. Uh, they were God's chosen instruments to communicate his mind and his will. But they were ordinary men. I love it that Amos was a fruit picker. You know, and so it gives us hope, doesn't it? <laughs> God will use anybody if you make yourself available. Um, but now he used different people in different ways, um, ordinary men, to do extraordinary work. But in these last days, there's a break now from the way in which God has communicated. In these last days, it marks the end of the old dispensation, and it communicates the new era of grace. The, the long-ago period was a time of prediction and preparation for the Messiah's coming. But these last days are a time of fulfillment, and finality, because Jesus is God's final word to man. Now, in these last days, God has spoken through his Son, and Jesus has fulfilled all that the prophets had spoken of. Jesus didn't come with a message. He was the message. As the Son of God, Jesus' position makes him distinct from the prophets. He has a character and a nature distinct from theirs. He has an intimate place with God. God enables him to reveal God uh, perfectly, that relationship that he has. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This is the closeness of God the Father and the Son. And because of that, he is able to express God's heart and mind perfectly. I love uh, Jesus when he ministers to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know, Jesus has just died, and they're confused. Well, all our hopes were in Jesus. We were just hoping he would be the one, and, and I don't know what happened. And Jesus comes alongside in Luke 24, 25 through 27, and he says, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things, to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, wouldn't you like to hear that study? He took all of what the prophets said, all the prophecies, all the messages, and related them to his ministry and to his work. And so God has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is a better revelation. He is not just a prophet, a good leader, uh, a teacher. There were many prophets. There is one son. And so the first thing that he tells us, uh, he lists seven statements that reveal to us how Jesus is better than the prophets. The first statement is he was appointed heir of all things. 
Now, being an heir reveals his rank and his dignity. This statement relates to him being the son, because a son is the natural heir to the father. So Christ then inherits all things that belong to God. And what does God own? Everything. Everything. Uh, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalms 2, 7 through 8 says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. So all things in creation then, because Jesus is the heir, pass to Jesus. He is owns all things in creation. And through redemption... He has purchased each one of us as his personal possession. You've been bought with a price by the precious blood of Jesus. Um, but the amazing thing to me is I've been bought with this price. I belong to him. But what does he do then? He shares his inheritance with us. Um, we are saved out of poverty of sin and brought into the enduring rich estate of the Son of God. He shares all he has with us. He holds nothing back. I think about how people are destroyed when it comes to the inheritance of a family. You know, I, I remember when my mom died, the lawyer telling me that he uh, was working with a family one of the sons was the uh, executor, so he had all the money. He took it all to Vegas, spent it all. Nobody got anything. So uh, that won't happen to us with Jesus. <laughs> we can be assured uh, all things in creation belong to him, and he, he shares with it with us. Romans eight sixteen and 17 says that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And no one can squander this inheritance for you. First Peter 1, 4 says that our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled. It fades not away, and it is reserved in heaven for you cannot be squandered, cannot be diminished. Everything that God wants you to have, you will receive and partake with him. The second thing he tells us is that Jesus was the agent of creation through whom he made the worlds. And that, that phrase means, or the ages, time, eternity, as well as the universe. He made all things, not just the worlds, but everything in it. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, in him all things consist. He is the creator and the upholder of all things. John 1, 3 tells us that all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Nothing is self-derived. Evolution, a lie. He created all things with purpose. He wasn't just seeing what he could throw out there. Everything he has created is with purpose, 
And, and that purpose is to bring him glory. As creator, he is the sovereign ruler of all his creation. Revelations 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Isaiah 43.7, this is one of my favorite scriptures. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, yes, I have formed him, I have made him. God has called us. He has created us for what? For his glory. For his glory. And in Colossians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Because he has created us personally, we're responsible to him. We're indebted to him. He watches over us. He's personal. He isn't a God that created you and just, there you go, live your life. No. He's personally involved with every aspect of your life. He wants you to glorify him. He wants you to call on him, come to him. He has created you for personal relationship, for fellowship. He's your personal creator. He knows each of us, fashioned our hearts. He knows and understands our thoughts from afar. He knows our habits, our fears, our concerns, our weaknesses, our strengths. Each one of us has been fearfully and wonderfully made, created by him and for him to bring him glory. And that's when you're going to be happy, ladies, when you bring him glory glory, when you live your life in such a way that you honor and glorify him. The third thing he tells us about Jesus is that he is the brightness of God's glory. Now, the Hebrews were familiar with the glory of God, um, called the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, and that glory was seen over the tabernacle. It filled the Holy of Holies The glory of God was over that uh, mercy seat between the cherubim. Um, And sometimes they would be ministering in the temple, and the glory of God would just fill the place so that the priests could no longer minister. They would be so overcome by his presence and his glory. That's awesome, isn't it? I want to be overcome by his presence and his glory. But the word brightness there, it means to omit or radiate. And so Jesus radiates the glory and majesty of God. He radiates God's character, his nature, the majesty of his divine perfections. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus uh, was the brightness of God's glory. And what did, what did he say to the people in, in John 8, 12? That he is the light of the world. At the Mount of Transfiguration in, in Matthew 17, 2, 
when Peter, James, and John were up on the, the mountain with him, it says that he, that he was transfigured. He was changed into that glorious form. And it says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. I couldn't even imagine what that had to have looked like. I mean, they were obviously so dumbfounded because Peter couldn't get a hold of, how do I handle this? Maybe we should make these booths, you know, <laughs> and um, overcome. Jesus is to the Father what the rays of the sun are to the sun. We cannot see the sun. We see the rays shining out from the sun. And so Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the outshining of God's person and his character and his attributes. It's impossible to separate Christ's glory from God, just as it's impossible to separate the rays of the sun from the sun. I think about Moses. And Moses said, Lord, I just want more of you. I I want to see your glory. And God said, oh, you don't know what you're asking. No man can see the glory of God and live, the face of God and live. He says, you just stand here in this cleft of the rock. I'm going to hide you there. And he hides Moses. And God passes by. And what Moses sees is the afterglow. And you know what that does to Moses? Just from that little bit of the afterglow that he saw, he became so filled with light that they had to put a veil over him because the people couldn't take looking at him. So uh, transfigured by just being around God's glory like that. Jesus uh, has also radiated God's glory into our lives. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into what? His marvelous light. God has called us into his marvelous light to partake and see his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6 says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of us who have received Christ, the glory of God, that light has enlightened our lives. It shines into our darkness, and it brings his light. And so Christ reveals God to us personally. It's not just out there to the world. It is Christ who reveals God to us personally. Fourthly, he says that Jesus is the express image of his person. The word express image carries the idea of an engraved character or an impress made by a a die or a seal. Um, Kind of like in the old days when we used to write letters um, and you would uh, put a a, a wax seal and you'd take the seal and stamp it and you'd get that imprint. It'd be the exact image that you had on the, the seal would go into the wax. 
Um, and that's what he's talking about, that exact image, the exact expression, the likeness, the precise reproduction in every respect. So Jesus is the exact representation of the very substance of God. He expresses God's nature in an exact and perfect way. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus demonstrated that love on the cross. See, he, he exactly portrayed the love that God spoke of. He performed or, or he um, demonstrated it on the cross. John 14, 7 through 9, Jesus said, If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Jesus said, You, you look at me, and you're going to see the Father. But just as God had sent Jesus to represent him, so he sends us out to represent him in this world. We are to let our light so shine that people will see the good works, the things that we do, how we live, and they'll glorify God in heaven. We represent him. It may not be exact like Jesus does, right? We have a few flaws. But still, we are to yield ourselves to him, to surrender ourselves, that living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might know that perfect and acceptable will of God and live our lives that way. The fifth thing he tells us about Jesus is that he upholds all things by the word of his power. The word upholding has the idea of maintaining and sustaining. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. The NIV version says, In him uh, all things hold together. So he's not just the creator, but he is the sustainer of the entire universe. Um, he holds everything together. And how does he do this? By the power of his word. Just as he spoke the worlds into existence, that's how he sustains them. Every atom is filled with positive charges that should repel each other. Like magnets, you get the two positive ends together and and just have to really work at keeping them together. Um, they should just come apart. But what holds them together? Jesus. By the word of his power, he holds everything together. What should come apart is held together by him, by his power, because power belongs to him. By the power of his word, the dead were raised, diseases were healed, food was multiplied, wind was stilled, and the waves were stopped. By the power of his word, hearts are healed. It is by the power of his word that we are saved, we are encouraged, we are helped, we are strengthened, we are guided, we are comforted, we are sustained. Just as he sustains the universe, he sustains our lives. He is the one that is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before his throne with, uh, with exceeding joy, Jude 24. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall do what? He shall sustain you. 
You see, when you feel like your life is coming apart, and maybe it should come apart, he can hold you together. You can't hold you together. He can do it by the power of his word. The the sixth thing he tells us is that by himself he purged our sins. The author now turns from uh, who Christ is to what he's done. And he reminds the readers that Jesus has purged our sins. The word for purge means to cleanse, to make free from the defilement of sin, to free from the guilt of sin. And the tense of the word implies a single definite act, once and for all. Christ is not only God's final word, but his death on the cross is God's finished work of salvation. The Old Testament system of law and sacrifices provided atoning for sins. Uh, Then the readers would naturally think about the Day of Atonement, where the nation would come together and they would afflict their souls and... um, they would make an animal sacrifice. But this sacrifice and the Day of Atonement was performed every year. Year after year, there would be a reminder of sins. And you'll find this in Leviticus 16. But only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of that sacrifice in order to make atonement. He had to go by himself. They put little bells on his garment, so if something went wrong in there, They're trying to listen and make sure he's still moving. Um, But he had to go by himself. And all of this is a picture of Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, what did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 10, 4 says, It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Those were shadows and types. When Jesus came, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sins. And this sacrifice would never need to be repeated. His sacrifice would affect every person in every age for all time. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one sacrifice he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And he had to do it alone. He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had no comfort, no support, no one with him. It was by himself. He was alone for the first time in all eternity, separated from the Father. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He went into heaven and offered the blood of his sacrifice, and it was a once and for all redemption. John 19.30, just before he died, Jesus said, It is finished. Never to be repeated. It is finished. And after he finished the work of atonement, he rose from the dead, and he went to heaven, and he sat down because his work was done. So the seventh uh, statement that he makes here is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this speaks of Jesus' exaltation. But before he was exalted, what did he do? He humbled himself. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reminds us. Jesus came from heaven to earth 
He humbled himself in the most uh, amazing way, becoming in the likeness of men. God, deity, taking on the form of flesh. I can't imagine anything more humbling. Here he is, God Almighty, and he's walking around in one of these and subjected himself to being in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And because Jesus did this, God has highly exalted him, given him a name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So Jesus was humiliated on earth, but now he is enthroned in heaven, exalted to the highest place of honor and dignity and dominion and authority. The word majesty is used to describe the greatness of God. He's comparable to to no other. So what Jesus did was resume that place of glory and honor and dignity that he had with the Father. It's significant that Jesus sat down because the earthly priest never sat down. Their work was never done. It was a continual process they had to go through. But Jesus is there now, sitting in a place of rest, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. These seven statements reveal to us that Jesus possesses in himself all the qualifications uh, to be the mediator between God and man. He is the prophet through whom God has spoken his final word. He is the priest who has accomplished the perfect work of salvation, and he is the king eternal enthroned on high. And these truths are just power-packed, right? It's important that we keep them in mind. This is who Jesus is, and this is what these believers needed to be reminded of Before you think of going back to something inferior, I want you to look at what you have in Christ. Why would you give that up? The second point that that we want to look at is Jesus is revealed to be better than the angels in verse 4 through 9. Now, the section on the angels will be continued into chapter 2. But the Jewish people had a high regard for angels. God had used them throughout the Old Testament as his messengers uh, in the giving of the law, and different people had encounters with them, and they are awesome beings. They exist in vast numbers, and in most cases, they're invisible. But sometimes they will have a visible form. I think about Balaam. That, remember that angel was going to just destroy him, and the donkey kept sitting down. He kept beating the donkey, and finally his eyes were opened. Oh, all right then. You know. Um, but he didn't see the angel until his eyes were open. I think about um, uh, Elisha's servant. The, all the invading armies are all around him, and he's freaking out. Of course, I would be too. But uh, Elisha just prays, oh, Lord, open his eyes. God opens his eyes, and he sees the heavenly host of angels. He says, there's more with us than with them. And what a comfort that is. So angels are used by God to communicate his message, to minister to God's people, to administer God's judgment, and they continuously worship God. They are awesome and uh, amazing beings, powerful beings. 
but they're inferior to Jesus. Hebrews uh, 1, 4 through 5 says, Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, the answer is none. The word for better here means more useful, serviceable, more advantageous, more excellent. He is better than the angels by the nature of his name. It's unique to him. God has not called any angel his son. This belongs to Jesus only. And it speaks of the rank and the relationship that Jesus has with God. No angel was ever given this title. Job 1.6 talks about the angels coming together as the sons of God in a collective unit. But never has one angel been called out and given a title, the Son of God. So Jesus is given that title, Son, but they are given the title, Messengers. They are servants. Um, They function as God's servants, but he functions as the revealer and the redeemer of God towards man. The writer is quoting here Psalm uh, 2, verse 7. Today I've begotten you. And this takes place in the resurrection. Romans 1, 3 through 4 says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead was like an exclamation point after Jesus' name, the son exclamation point. And Paul speaks about this as well in Acts 13.33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Um, So like I said, this is like God's exclamation point uh, on Jesus being his son. The second quotation is from 2 Samuel 7.14. And this quote has to do with the father's relationship with the son as the heir of the throne of David. Originally, it's spoken of David, but prophetically of Jesus. And it marks a difference between the father's relationship with the son and his relationship with the angels. He is the son, and they are the servants. He is better than the angels by the nature of his office. We read in 6 through 7. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he says, who makes his angels um, spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. The word firstborn there uh, means first in priority, importance, and rank. It is not first in chronological order. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn means he is the preeminence. He is uh, before all of them, not, not in order. The angels, in comparison, were created by him and for him. He's not among them. He's not their peer. Um, the quote here is from Deuteronomy 32:43, And God had commanded the angels to worship Jesus. And this they did, you know, if you read the Christmas story in Luke uh, 2.13, glory to God in the highest, uh, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And in Revelations 5.11-13, record them, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. They um, 
They worship him there. In contrast to the angels, they are spoken of as his possessions. They are his spirits. They are his ministers um, as a flame of fire. And this quotation is from uh, Psalms 104, verse 4. He says that they are spirits, which that word literally means wind. They are swift as wind. They're invisible. You don't see them. You see what they do, maybe. But they are swift as wind and powerful as fire. After the fires that we've seen these last couple weeks, talk about wind and fire and the power they possess. This is what he's speaking about with these angels. They are sent out to do God's work. Fire can also uh, refer to judgment. And we know that the angels are often used in um, bringing about the judgment of God. In Egypt, it was the angel of death that went through and killed the firstborn. Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels came and they called down um, fire and brimstone. Think about um, the book of Revelation. There they are blowing the trumpets and judgment is coming. They pour out the bowls of God's wrath. And so they administer judgment as well. But the point is that angels are the servants of God. Just like wind and fire are subject to God, they do God's will. So do the angels. So Jesus is better than the angels by the nature of his person in verse 8 through 9. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So Jesus is superior to the, to the angels because God, the Father, not just calls him Son. He calls him God. Jesus is God. Shiloh got it right. And this quote is from Psalm 45, 6 through 7. You see, the angels minister around the throne, but it is Jesus who sits on the throne. He is the sovereign king. This statement also reveals Jesus' eternal nature. His throne is forever and ever. You know, we have earthly kings that have sat on thrones, but they always get dethroned. It's a problem we have down here. But Jesus sits enthroned in heaven, and it is forever and ever. And the statement also speaks about the nature of his authority. The scepter that a king would hold was ornamental staff and was carried by rulers as a sign of their authority. You knew who the king was. Remember Esther? Oh, man, if he doesn't hold out the scepter, I'm in big trouble. Jesus holds the scepter of righteousness. His rule will never end, and his authority will be executed in righteousness. Psalms 97.2 says, Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And his righteousness was established in his becoming a sacrifice for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He covers us with his righteousness. And he lived that example of a righteous life. He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And this stands in contrast to the angels that rebelled and uh, against the rule of heaven. The Father has also anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness. Kings and priests were anointed with oil when they began 
to take their office. And here the Father anoints Jesus because he is prophet, priest, and king. The word companion there refers to angels, and Jesus is found to be superior to them in every way, as we can see through what we've heard tonight. He is better by nature, by the nature of his name, the nature of his office, and the nature of his person. These opening verses uh, reveal to the Hebrew Christians that Jesus was better than the prophets, better than the angels. There was no comparison. Jesus is not better. He's the best. And they needed to keep the proper perspective of who Jesus is so they would not lose heart. And this is what we must do as well. We have to keep our eyes on him. And let me ask you this question. Is Jesus better in your life? Is he better than your greatest joy, your pursuits, the things that you love? Is he greater than your dreams, than your hopes? Is he better than the thing that that has your attention? He needs to be better in our lives, in our hearts, every day, all the time. Jesus sits enthroned in heaven, but is he enthroned in your heart, in your life? Where does Jesus fit in your life? You see, our enemy seeks to diminish Jesus in in that place in our lives. He tries to crowd him out with the many things. But Jesus said one thing is needed. And it's a choice to make Jesus better than any other pursuit, any other love, any other thing in our lives. So we need to keep our eyes on him. This year, let's make Jesus and give Jesus the better place in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus, for sending him to be the savior of our sins, to bring us into a beautiful relationship with you, for making us new creatures, for giving us hope. And Father, we pray that we would give back to you a love that you deserve, an adoration and worship. Lord, help us keep Jesus in the center of our lives, to seek him first to seek him always, Lord. Father, just be with us this year as we study who you are. Have that greater place in our lives, Lord. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.